listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Well, friends, would you grab your Bibles this morning? You can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll start with reading Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and verse 29. So we want to set our attention on these these two single verses. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and then verse 29. So Paul here is instructing households how they ought to behave in light of the gospel. And so Paul says this in chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now go down to verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Oh, Father, we do pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. And so we're currently, if you weren't here last Sunday, we're currently in a series entitled Life in the Church. And the goal of this series is is fairly simple. We're just looking at the local church and picking up doctrines that should be important to us that we sometimes forget about or neglect. Just simply picking them up and just examining them afresh. And so last week we started off this series by picking up the doctrine of baptism and we, we looked at it afresh. Well, what is baptism all about? Well, baptism is how we respond to the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is preached. Jesus died, he was raised, he ascended to heaven, and he is returning. And so we command people to do what? We command them to believe, we command them to repent, and then we command them to be baptized. And so last Sunday's sermon was a call to be baptized, and that call still stands. If you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. That's how you respond to the gospel. It's how we become Christians. And so this naturally leads us to what we're going to consider this morning. Baptism leads us somewhere and it leads us to the church. And so we're going to talk about church membership. So let's start off church membership like this. Brothers and sisters, let this fact sink into your ears. Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church. The Apostle Paul is quick to remind us of this truth. We heard it in Ephesians chapter 5, and that's why we read those two verses, because they highlight Jesus' love. Just listen to what Paul says again, keying in on the heart of Jesus for his people. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. Going down to verse 29, Paul says, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Christ cherishes the church. Jesus loves the church. And so when you read through the scriptures, you cannot escape this truth and for good reason. Jesus loves the church. As you consider the gospel, the love of Jesus is all through it. The gospel begins with the love of Jesus. We ask, well, why did Christ save sinners? What propelled Jesus to come down from heaven and take the form of a human being and suffer and die on a bloody cross and absorb God's wrath for us? What drove Christ to do that? Well, his heart was consumed with love for his church. 
Listen to how Paul talks about the love of Jesus in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. Paul says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who what? Who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul's talking about the gospel and he says it all begins with this, Christ's love, a glorious love. Christ has set his affections upon his people and that's what drives him. Even more, the love of Jesus is the end of the gospel. It's the goal of the gospel. We ask, well, what do we have to look forward to in coming ages? What's going to satisfy our hearts 2,000 years from now? What are we going to continue to explore day after day, age after age? Well, it's the love of Jesus. We just prayed over Ephesians chapter 3, but listen again to how Paul talks about the love of Jesus. It is the goal of the gospel. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is where Paul really gets down to the brass tacks. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to what? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Paul's saying what? What's the point of your existence? Your point of existence is to know the love of Jesus today and increasing fashion forever to know the love of Jesus. That's what we have to look forward to forever, the love of Christ. But we have to be clear, the love of Jesus is not something just to know and enjoy. The love of Jesus transforms us. When Christ saves us, he comes to us, he he washes us up, he cleans us. By the power of his spirit, he, he takes out the old heart that we had that couldn't function, that couldn't love. And he gives us a new heart, the heart of the new covenant. And then he indwells us by the power of his spirit so that we might live for him. And so powerful, so transformative is this love of Jesus that we hear the Apostle Paul say this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. He says, the love of Christ constrains us. Or if you're reading the ESV, the love of Christ controls us. What is Paul saying? He's saying that that Jesus' aim is this, that in this present life, we would begin to love what Jesus loves, that we are runs. So what does this mean for us? Jesus loves the church. He cherishes the church. And from that love, he has died for the church and he nourishes the church. And he has plans to shower the church with his love forever. And so I ask you, does the love of Christ control you? Does it constrain you? Do you love the church? Do you love the church? So right from the get-go, I want to lay my cards on the table and not hide anything from you. The New Testament teaches us how we're to tangibly love the church. And so we tangibly love the church by becoming a member of the local church. We tangibly love the church by becoming a member of the local church. And we can put it this way. As you read through the New Testament, the clear expectation of the New Testament is that every baptized follower of Jesus, so everyone who's responded to the gospel, would become a functioning member of a local church. 
Now, if you're listening carefully to what I just said, this statement and the way I phrased it should land on you with some weight. What I just said, if truth sets some clear and indefinable parameters for us, it charts out the path of obedience to King Jesus. You're walking in obedience to King Jesus if you're a functioning member of a local church. And we can put it the other way. If you're not a functioning member of a local church, you're walking contrary to Jesus' will and desire. And that's weighty. It should be weighty. We should feel it. And I'm starting off this way for a reason. I'm piling up some weight on your shoulders so that we would be driven towards this matter of church membership and that we would consider, consider it with vigor, that we'd be earnest about it, so that we would pursue church membership as something that, that matters to Jesus and that should matter to us. So as we think about church membership, the first matter that has to be cleared up in our minds before we do anything else is to find, well, what is church membership? When I talk about church membership, what am I talking about? And so as we think about it, church membership is all about the matter of relationships. When we talk about church membership, we are, we are attempting to define the believer's relationship with a local church and to flip it around, the local church's relationship with a believer. And so there are all sorts of relationships that we participate in. Our lives are embedded in relationships. And some relationships that we're, we're in are rather informal. Perhaps you're a fan of a, a sports team. When you're a fan of a sports team, you don't sign a card, you don't sign a contract, you don't pay any dues. In fact, the, the organization you might cheer for might not even know you, the fan, exists. But there is still this relationship that exists between you and your sports team. When they win the big game, what do you do? You cheer. You jump up and down. You're joyful. And when they lose, you mourn. You're sullen. You're grumpy for a few days. But this is an informal and loose relationship. About as informal and loose as it gets. Think about it. You could switch allegiances. You could switch teams. You could begin to start, for a different, start to cheer for a different team. You might, for a period of time, get too busy with work or something else in your life and, and not have time to tune in and watch your team. And it's no big deal. No lawyer's going to show up at your door and enforce the contract. There isn't going to be any sort of reckoning. No trouble's going to come your way because it's a loose and informal relationship. On the other hand, there are relationships in our lives that are formal and binding. Think about marriage. At the altar, vows are made between a man and a woman. We say things like, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, until death do we part. This is my solemn vow. We say that. That vow, this relationship, doesn't leave any wiggle room. Think about marriage. You don't have the ability to say, I'm taking a vacation from this marriage. Those vows don't allow that. No, this relationship is what? It's formal and binding. And if it's broken, there's going to be all sorts of troubling consequences that are going to follow. It's going to create trouble in your life. And so church membership is about relationships. And we have all these different relationships in our lives. We've got these informal, loose ones. We've got these formal, binding ones. And we ask, well, where on the scale does church membership sit? How should we think about church membership? What kind of relationship is this? Well, it heavily leans towards the side of formal and binding. And so we can ask a follow-up question. We ask, well, what's exactly entailed in this relationship of church membership? 
when membership is happening, what commitments are being made? Well, there's two, relation, two, two sides to this relationship in church membership. And we can think about it like this. In church membership, the believer formally commits to live out his or her discipleship in the midst of a particular local church. So when you become a member, you're, you're saying, I'm going to live out my discipleship here with these people. And on the other hand, the church is doing something as well. The church is saying, I hear that, and we're going to oversee your discipleship in the midst of us. And so really the whole matter of church membership can be boiled down to the matter of discipleship. Church membership is the formal commitment to live out the Christian faith with other believers. And so what does this mean for us? What does it look like to be a church member? What does it look like to sign up for this? What does it look like for a church to oversee discipleship? Well, we don't have to wonder. We have a document in our church that helps us understand what church membership is all about. It's called our church covenant. So I just want to take some time and read through this, and it helps us think through church membership. Just listen to this. We read this when we take in new members. The new members say this before the congregation, and then the congregation reaffirms their commitment to this covenant. It goes like this. Having been led as we believe by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and having made profession of our faith in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do now in the presence of God, angels in this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We endeavor, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We endeavor to maintain family and secret devotions, to educate our children spiritually, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, exemplary in our deportment, so that our lives may be outward symbols to the world in which we live of the saving power of Jesus Christ. We endeavor to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the command of our Savior to secure it without delay. I think that perfectly sums up what church membership is about. It's formal, right? You hear the formality in it? We do this. We, we stand up in front of the, of the church and say, I'm going to do this. That's formal. And it's binding. What do we say? In the presence of God, angels in this assembly. We invoke the presence of God when we make this covenant. It is binding. We're saying, God, witness this. I'm going to keep this commit. I'm going to keep this covenant. And it's about discipleship. It's about relationship, regulating the relationships in the body of Christ and what we're committing to do. And it's about love. It's about loving each other as Christ has commanded us. And so there we have a definition of church membership. It's a formal commitment to discipleship. 
We have an idea what's involved when we, we turn to our church covenant. It's so helpful. And now what I want to do, I'm going to circle back to how we began. And so I began by what? I, I laid my cards out on the table. I said, the clear expectation of the New Testament is that every baptized follower of Jesus be a functioning member of a local church. And then I upped the ante. I went past that and I said, this is the path of obedience. You are walking in obedience to King Jesus if you're a functioning member of a local church and you're walking contrary to Jesus' will and desire if you're not. So it's black and white. These statements aren't allowing wiggle room for us. They're binding our consciences. This is the path of obedience and the only path of obedience. Now some of you might be thinking, well, what right does this man have to speak like that? He's pushing me in a direction. He's binding my conscience. He's only coloring with black and white. He's not using any grays. He's not allowing for any wiggle room. What right does he have to speak like that? What we're going to do with the bulk of our time remaining is put these assertions that I've started the sermon off with on trial. Do the scriptures really speak like this? Does the New Testament really push us in this direction? Do we have to talk like this? Do we have to talk like this and function like this? Is it obedience to God or is it some man-made ritual? So the argument I'm going to make for church membership is a fairly simple one. The argument goes like this. So there's some logic working here. If church membership doesn't exist, then I cannot obey that. If church membership doesn't exist, then I cannot obey that. Now I'm making this kind of argument because you cannot find a simple proof text for church membership. You can't open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and land your finger on it and say, there it is, we got it. We don't have to think anymore about this. But what I'm hoping will become evident as I make this argument, if church membership doesn't exist, then I can't obey that, is that we will see as we work through the New Testament that the authors the apostles and Jesus assumed that church membership would be functioning in every local church. That they baked in the doctrine of membership into all of these other commands. And these commands cannot make sense without church membership. And so we can think of this argument a bit like a rope. So a rope, a good rope, is made up of many strands and they're braided together. And we know that one strand is not very strong by itself. It won't hold very much weight. Put under tension, it's going to snap and break. But when they're braided together, it becomes strong. It can hold a lot of weight. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to the New Testament. And we're going to pick up a few strands and we're going to start weaving them together. And as we weave to them together, we're going to see the doctrine of church membership. And we're going to see that it's weighty and that it's functioning in the midst of the New Testament. And so let's start our argument here. Here's the first strand of the rope. If church membership doesn't exist, then I cannot submit to my leaders. If church membership doesn't exist, then I cannot submit to my leaders. So when you open up your Bible, you find that the scriptures call for members of a local church to submit to the leaders of a local church. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls 
as those who will have to give an account. Now just think about those verses, those three verses we just read. What words do we hear? We hear submission, we hear obedience, we hear imitation, we hear subjection. And really, those words only make sense when there are clear boundary lines drawn. These commands only make sense, can only be obeyed when there's formal commitments made between believers and local churches and their, their leaders. Just listen to how the scriptures work. Who are we to obey? The author of the Hebrews says what? Your leaders. Who are we to imitate and remember? Your leaders. Your. They belong to you. And as we think about it, this is just common sense. Imagine this scenario. We have boundary markers in our lives. They're functioning all of the time. So you're sitting down in the morning and you turn the news on like you always do and you watch some news. But this time something different happens. As you sit down to watch the news, somehow the president of Zambia hijacks the TV signal. And there he is front and center on your TV screen. And and what does he do? Well, he lays down the gauntlet. He says, all Canadians must wear a yellow hat on Wednesdays or they will be severely punished. It's a bit ridiculous. But what do you do? What do you do if the president of Zambia does that? When Wednesday comes rolling around, are you going to put the yellow hat on your head and walk around fearful of being punished by the president of Zambia? No, you're going to laugh at that. You're going to think it's some kind of joke on the TV, some kind of practical joke. Why? Because the president of Zambia isn't your leader. You aren't under his leadership. He isn't over you in leadership. You don't belong to his people. And as we think about it, this is what's going on in the New Testament. The New Testament assumes that there's these clear boundary lines functioning in every church, clear enough that Christians can say, that's my leader, that's my pastor, that's my elder. I know it. He is over me. And I am under him in God. There's these clear boundary lines baked in. Church leadership only makes sense in the local church if there's functioning membership. Who are you the leader of? It only makes sense to follow if there's church membership baked in. Who are you following? Well, it's my leader. And so we need to apply this to ourselves. So two applications. First, this is for the the non-church member. And so I ask you, if you aren't a member of a local church, do you really have any spiritual leaders in your life that you submit and obey to in a meaningful way? Is there a pastor, is there an elder who can enter into your life and speak into it for your good? Or are you operating without any clear boundary lines? Are you operating as if you're a citizen of no country at all? So do you have any spiritual leaders in your life that you meaningfully submit to and were commanded to do it? Hebrews 13. Second application, and this is for church members. So church members... Brothers and sisters at Fort William, I ask you, who has more weight in your life? The president of Zambia or your local leaders? So we live in an age of access. That's what I'm trying to get at when I say that. There's so many resources we have at our hands. We can listen to podcasts, YouTube, books. This is good. But at the end of the day, I ask you, well, who has more sway in your life? The, the leader you have never met, that you've only seen on a screen, or the leaders that God has placed over you? And so this is where the doctrine of church membership pushes on each one of us for non-members and members alike. And so there's the first strand of the argument. If church membership doesn't exist, then I cannot submit to my leaders. Then I cannot submit to my leaders. So there's a second strand. We're going to start braiding in with the first one. And the second strand of the argument is this. If church membership doesn't exist, 
then we can't practice church discipline. If church membership doesn't exist, then we cannot practice church discipline. So you open up your Bible again, and when you read through your Bible, the New Testament, you find that there's this thing called church discipline. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives us instructions about how this ought to work in a congregation. Then we go to the letter of 1 Corinthians, and we see church discipline at work. We see a real-life, live scenario. There's this man who's being disciplined for sleeping with his father's wife, and he's expelled from the church. Now, what I want to focus on these passages, not necessarily the procedures of church discipline or the events that surround them, but what both of these passages assume about the local church, the nature of the local church. Because in the mind of Paul and Jesus, the local church is not this amorphous blob without distinctive borders or lines. Rather, both of these authors envision a community of people who know who exactly belongs to them and who doesn't. Who knows who's in the body of Christ and who isn't in the body of Christ. And we see this at work in the text. So when a brother proves to be unrepentant in sin, Jesus instructs us to what? Tell it to the church. And if that brother doesn't listen, Jesus then tells us to treat him as a Gentile and tax collector. What is Jesus doing? He's drawing boundary lines. He's drawing a line for us. There's an inside of the church and there's an outside of the church. And the church should be able to understand where's the inside and where's the outside. Otherwise, church discipline makes no sense. And Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5. Speaking about the man who's sleeping with his father's wife, Paul says, Purge the evil person from among you. Then he says, For what have I to do with outsiders? It's not those, is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? Paul's doing the same thing that Jesus is doing. He's, he's drawing lines. Paul expects us to know who belongs to the congregation and who doesn't. And so we see as we think about church membership, it only works if there's some kind of mechanism at work that we know who's in the church and who's outside of the church, that we know who we are accountable to and who we're living with and who we're not living with. And so again, this brings a few applications for us. First, application is for the non-member. And so I ask you, do you have a local church that you're accountable to? Do you have a local church that you're accountable to? If you go off the rails in the Christian life, is there a community of believers that have, that have pledged themselves to go after you, that has pledged to care for your soul, that has pledged to use biblical means to rescue you? In other words, have you committed your discipleship to a local congregation? Second application is for church members. We can push a little bit here church members of Fort William, do you live in such a way that your membership in the local church actually makes a difference? Is there a circle of folks in the body of Christ here that know your struggles and your temptations and your sorrows and your sins? Do you have a friend, do you have a group of friends who can console you and bring the promises of the gospel near to your soul? Have you ever brought a significant prayer request to someone in the congregation of God's people? Something on your heart? Not the kind of prayer request that my great aunt has a knee surgery, but there's something going on in my soul and I need you to, to, to share it with me and bring it before the Lord. Have you placed yourself in a situation where people can really ask you how you're, how you're doing and pry into your soul a bit? Do you live in such a way that your church membership actually makes a difference for you? And so this is the second strand of the argument. If church membership doesn't exist, 
know, we can't practice church, church discipline. This brings us to our last strand. If church membership doesn't exist, then I cannot love fellow Christians well. If church membership doesn't exist, then I cannot love fellow Christians well. And so we have the responsibility to love all people. We know this. It doesn't matter where we find them, what they look like, what value society might place upon them. We must love them. We owe them love. As Paul says in Romans chapter 13. Or as Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And as Jesus teaches us in the parable of the Good Samaritan, our neighbor is a rather expansive term. But when it comes to the church, we have a special duty, a duty that transcends love to neighbor. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially, so Paul is, is focusing his attention here, especially on those who are of the household of faith. Paul says, Do good. But focus here on the household of faith. You have a particular obligation to your brothers and sisters in Jesus. And this is where church membership proves to be a special help. To obey this command, we don't have to go down our street conducting interviews. Are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Are you of the household of faith? No, all we have to do to obey Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 is just look at that document we get each fall, the the membership directory. All we have to do is show up to corporate worship and say, here are my brothers and sisters. I need to look at them to see if they need care and love because I have obligation, as Paul says, to do good, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And as we think about it, this is the mark of a healthy church. We find this functioning in the book of Acts. And so people are added to the church in Acts chapter 2, And what do they do once they're in the church? Well, they love especially the household of faith. Listen to Acts chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. That's what church membership does if it's functioning well and the Spirit's using it. So again, there's a few applications for us. And first application is to the non-member. Do you have a clear picture of those you are called to love? When Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, you have obligation to the household of faith. You have a, a pl- clear picture of that household and exactly every member of that household. Do you know the family members you're responsible for? And second, to the members of Fort William, do you have a keen eye on the family of Jesus? Do you have a keen eye on the family of Jesus? Do you have an eager and ready heart to meet their needs? And this is a searching question, but it's an important question. Are we as a people like the people of Acts chapter 4? That's what healthy church membership looks like, a people generously meeting the needs of other brothers and sisters in Jesus? Could it be said of you? Could it be said of me? Could it be said of us that we have this heart? And so that's the third strand of my argument. If church membership doesn't exist, then we cannot love well our brothers and sisters in Jesus. And so there's the argument for church membership. It consists of three strands. We looked at submission to leaders. We looked at church discipline. We looked at loving our brothers and sisters 
and Jesus. And the logic is, in these commands, is baked in the idea of church membership. And if you pull that idea of church membership out, those commands really stop to make sense. They don't really function well in the local church. And when we start to wrap these threads together, these these cords together, they make a strong and sturdy rope. We see that we, we need church membership and we need it to be functioning well so that we would love each other, that we'd be a holy people and that our discipleship would prosper and grow. But this is not where I want to end. So I've made this long argument. You've been following this logic and hopefully you've been following this logic, but now I want to end with an appeal. We've got an argument, now it's time for an appeal and my appeal is this. Jesus loves the church. He does. He bled, he died for the church. The Apostle Paul says, Jesus loved the church. Apostle Paul says, Christ cherishes and nourishes the church. My prayer is that Jesus' word this morning would take control of your heart and that you could talk like Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and say, the love of Christ controls me. The love of Christ is directing my heart to where his heart runs and I love the church. And so I urge you this morning, if you're not a member of the local church, I urge you, become a member of this local church. Become a member. Start a conversation today with one of the elders, with Bill or Howard or Mike or myself. Start a conversation because it's good for you. It's good for you to be discipled in the midst of the congregation. And if you are a member, I hope this sermon stirs you up stirs you up to love the church and to press into discipleship because we need to. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do rejoice in the love of Jesus and we rejoice in its practical effects. And we pray now that your word would do its work, that it would create obedience in us, that it would create new desires. We can't do it on our own and so we cry out to you. Create in us a new heart, O God. Give us a new spirit. We long to run in your commandments, and so would you give us a heart to do it? Would you give us the will to do it? Would you give us the desire? We pray this all in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen.